You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. So how is everyone? Hope you're doing good and you're all well and keeping busy. So over the past few weeks, there's been a massive buzz of activity from legendary hard rockers Def Leppard. The band returned to their hometown of Sheffield to play what was an intimate show for them in front of 850 people at the Lead Mill, which me and my schoolmate John got the chance to go to, which was pretty awesome. They followed it up with a record signing at HMV, then kicked off their European stadium tour with Motley Crue at Sheffield United's Bramall Lane, which I heard they totally crushed. This all coincides with the release of their new album, Drastic Symphonies, which features reworkings of many of their biggest hits, but it's all accompanied by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Now, one of the tracks which has been getting the spotlight is a stripped-back version of the hysteria anthem Pour Some Sugar On Me, which features today's guest, Canadian singer-songwriter M. Griner. M is a lifelong Def Leppard fan who, after striking up a friendship with singer Joe Elliott, presented her own version of the song to him over 20 years ago, only to get the chance two decades later to actually record it with the band and also get the chance to perform it with them live for the BBC. M herself has been recording and releasing albums since the mid-90s, growing up in Ontario, Canada and raised on a mixture of radio pop and hard rock. Her career has seen her perform and tour with David Bowie and to date she has around 30 albums to her name with numerous collaborations, including her recent hard rock band Trapper with the awesome Sean Kelly who has been a previous guest on this podcast. Emma's recently released their brand new album, Business and Pleasure, which will see her return to the UK next week with an album release show on her birthday in London at the Pheasantry Pizza Express Live on June the 8th. And tickets for that show are available from pizzaexpresslive.com. And you can find out everything about Em's incredible career on her own website, which is simply mgriner.com. As always, this straight-to-video podcast is proudly presented to you in association with Affinity Photo, an incredible piece of photo editing software which I've been using for graphic design the past couple of years. It's used to create the podcast episode artwork you see each week, and it's an extremely affordable alternative to other programs on the market. So if you get a chance, please check them out at affinity.serif.com. All right, let's get into today's show. M was a delight to chat to and she shared some super fun stories, which I know you're going to enjoy. So please sit back and enjoy today's straight to video talk with singer songwriter and mutual Def Leppard fan M Griner. Hey, how's it going, Em? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Lovely to see you. Yeah, lovely to meet you. I appreciate you doing this for us. Very cool to connect. I learned about you through the band you did with Sean Trapper like a couple of years ago. I think I reached out then, but I'm glad it's happened now with everything that's been going off with your new album and obviously the Def Leppard stuff that's happening as well. So everything's kind of come together just right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Where are you based anyway? I'm based right in the middle of the UK. So um, Sean used to come over in like the early 2000s and he always used to play at a place called Junction 7 in Nottingham. That's where we got to know each other. So yeah, we're right in the middle of the UK. When did you get back from the UK? 
almost 10 days ago now. So I've been back for a while. Yeah. And then back over shortly again. Do you get a chance to climatize or is it constant jet lag? Yeah. I mean, I haven't traveled internationally for a while, so it was definitely like a wake up call, but I think I've learned some new tips. You recently wrote on your Facebook page that you were grateful for music and how it unites us in unexpected ways. Such a wonderful and very, very true quote. But looking back on your career, that's happened in so many ways. Things are like very intertwined and a bunch of like landmarks in your journey where experience have crossed and led to further like magical musical opportunities. Most recently, this whole Def Leppard collaboration, which I'd like to trace through the other parts of your career. So could you throw things like way, way back for everyone. Tell us how you were introduced to Def Leppard originally at like a very young age. Sure. My brothers, I have two brothers. They're three and five years older than me. So you can imagine growing up in the 80s, I had a lot of, one was into the prog rock, you know, Genesis and all that. And then my other brother was into like guitar, metal and all that. So I kind of got this crazy education. As well as being in a whole boy household as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, I was kind of into pop music as well. But then when Hysteria came out, it was sort of that, you know, oh, yeah, this is amazing, you know, musicianship and cool guitar solos and stuff. But it's also pop, right? Pop rock. I always describe that stuff as like when I heard it, it's like so heavy, but so melodic to your young ears. It's like, oh, this is heavy, but there's just something magically melodic about it as well. Yeah, totally. And, you know, Rob, every song on that album, it's just like knock it out of the park kind of thing. And of course, we didn't know who Mutt Lang was. And I mean, we had some idea of who Def Leppard was because we had Pyromania on vinyl. But Hysteria was like my cassette tape, you know, like (laughs) it was like mine. This is my music. So I just fell in love with the band. And, you know, at that stage, just got all the music magazines and had my mom sew the Hysteria album on the back of my jean jacket and I'm bleaching my jeans in the tub and all that stuff. Were you trying to copy Joe Elliott's jeans with like the multiple slashes in them? Totally. <laughs> it looked great. Yeah. Who didn't? Or at least dream about it. So yeah, that was my introduction to them. Always loved them through the years. And then I got to meet Joe for the first time when I was singing with David Bowie. So that's like years later down the line. Years later. Yeah, it was 1999. Had you ever got a chance to see them live in concert at any point? Not before that point. But once I met Joe, I mean, I kind of went to go see them every year after that. Just as a sideline, obviously discovering like hysteria on cassette. What's the story of you finding a Coney Hatch cassette on the side (laughs) of the road? Because that led to quite an interesting musical connection as well. It did. So for people who don't know Coney Hatch, they're a rock band from Canada. Their first album was produced by Kim Mitchell. I was just walking along the road as you do when you're (laughs) a kid in the country without the internet. And I saw this tape and it was totally torn to shreds and it said Coney Hatch on it. And I was like, oh, I was it just the tape or did it have the whole box with it? It was totally someone's like dubbed cassette. So, <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so I was curious. So I went back and like pieced it together like you do with the scotch tape and everything, wound it back together. And then I was like, wow, this is like another type of band I haven't heard. It was really raw. It wasn't like glam or anything like that. I was just like, who is this band? So then I sort of took ownership of them as well. My brothers weren't really into Coney Hatch. And Later, I ended up writing a letter to Carl Dixon, who's one of the singers in that band, 
by this point, like they had sort of already run their course. So he was quite jazzed to get a letter. And I just asked him about his influences. And, and he wrote back this long two page letter. How old was you at the time? I think this was when I was 14, maybe. Yeah. So he like told me about Paul Rogers and the small faces and then Ronnie Wood and Bad Company and all the people he was inspired by. So I, of course, went and listened to them. But he ended up inviting me to record my very first demos because I was songwriting by that point. And that gave me my start. That's unreal. Have you still got the letter he wrote back to you? Probably somewhere. Yeah. And it pays to pick up garbage on the side of the road. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so where did you get all your other albums from, either from your brothers or finding them? Did you have like a local record store? In Ontario. We did. So there would be Sam the Record Man in our local mall and then a store called A Records, but also there was like Kmart. So you could go and get your singles there, and that makes me sound like I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> but that was sort of the tail end of being able to buy singles like 45s. So yeah, but honestly, most of the music I discovered through American Top 40 and just listening to the radio. Did many bands come through your town? Where was like the nearest big hub for touring bands? That's a good question. At that point, not many bands came through. The closest would be Toronto. So I remember my first real concert, and I can say this because we're a rock and roll crowd, <laughs> was Joe Satriani. So, Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. When I was 16. Wow. What what have you been doing then? Would it be like surfing with the alien kind of stuff? Yeah. Maybe it was when I was 14. He was touring with Stuart Ham, And by that point, I had picked up bass, playing bass. So I was a big nerd about it. And I was like, oh, wow, there's Stuart Ham and his funny looking bass. And yeah, I've always kind of been a nerd about music, but always just loved it so much. What kind of attracted you to the bass guitar? Again, I think being the third of three kids and being the only girl, I sort of picked what was left right? So my older brother, who's into the prog, he had his keyboards. And then Frank, who produced the Trapper stuff, by the way, he was into the guitar stuff. So I wasn't going to play drums, really. So I picked up the bass. Girl bass players are always the coolest member of the band anyway. <laughs> always. Thank you. <laughs> I like to think so. Um, your first two albums were recorded and released independently. Then you signed to Mercury Records, released the album Public in 1998, I believe, but then suffered from the whole label going through a merger leading you to leave but then you head out to New York which eventually led to the opportunity to join David Bowie's band as keyboardist and backing singer what was New York like at that time what comes to mind was it exciting for you it definitely was I had lived in Toronto already for about four or five years so you kind of run your course in a city when you're that age and you want to explore, right? Because I'd never really been anywhere. So New York was really exciting, obviously. Every time I went there, I felt something happened with my career that was big. Even though I was dropped from the label, I still like loved being there. And that's when I started doing shows. Whereabouts was you playing? I don't know New York that well, but I know like the East Village kind of Bowery area and all that kind of stuff. Well, I was actually the first person to play the Bowery Ballroom when they opened up. I had a show there with Bernard Butler. Wow, that is awesome. Yeah. And I opened because I opened. I was the first one. <laughs> yes. After that, it was smaller places. There was a place called Fez. And that was really where I met the other Bowie band. And they just invited me into the band and I wasn't doing anything. So said yes. We're a similar age. I think I'm like a year older than you. But just how familiar was you with Bowie's catalogue of songs? Was it someone who you knew a vast amount about? Or as we're a similar age, was he more Jareth from Labyrinth? <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of unaware of his movie life. I mean, I knew he had been in movies, but you know, I really was like a like kind of a metal girl. So, what I knew of Bowie was Let's Dance and Dancing in the Streets, like the 
obvious 80s stuff. MTV era. Exactly. So to then learn stuff like Ziggy Stardust and go back and learn all these other songs from the 70s, like it was quite an education. Would that maybe work in your favor that you didn't have this? I mean, because he's obviously legendary, but once you learn his back catalogue, that's when you realize how legendary is his influence and stuff like that. But if you're not that aware, do you think that kind of helped you a little bit? You weren't as phased or was it still a big deal? Yeah, I mean, I think I learned that it was a big deal. I didn't go into it thinking, like I didn't go into it starstruck. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who I was a huge fan of was Peter Gabriel, actually. Okay. And I thought, oh, if I sang with Peter Gabriel, I'd just crumble <laughs> because, <laughs> because I'd be so starstruck. But with Bowie, yeah, like the first day of rehearsals, it was very casual. I don't even think I was trying that hard. I don't think I did that well. And then over time, I just realized what a big deal it was. It's funny, like a song like Gene Genie or something will mean something to someone who heard it back then. But to me, it'll always remind me of like 1999 and learning those songs. So they're nostalgic for me in a whole other way. How many gigs in was it when you did Glastonbury? Quite a few. Glastonbury was one of the last things we did. Yeah. But I mean, I wasn't with them for very long. I was with them for maybe a chunk of three months and then a chunk of three months over the span of like a year and a half. So, you know, he's had a lot of people in his bands and I was just really fortunate to be one of them. Fantastic. And one of the first shows you performed, I believe, was in Ireland, which is where you first met Joe Elliott, like you said earlier after the gig. How cool was that? Was that like, that looks like Joe Elliott. That is Joe Elliott. Was it that kind of thing? (laughs) Or did you know he was going to be at the after party? No, not at all. I knew there were people there, you know, that were famous. But when I saw Joe, and he was just by himself. So... Mark Platty and my band had already spoken to Joe, and I said, can you please introduce us, as I'm a huge fan. There is a picture, I should send it to you, like, Joe kind of looks like a footballer, and I look <laughs> like a super fan, just giddy out of my mind, so it's really funny. That's wicked, and I guess you guys hit it off. Do you remember what you spoke about? Yeah, I mean, luckily, I had some of my own albums with me. So I remember giving him the last album I had made. I made it in a cottage. And it was this album called Science Fair, which I made on an eight track. So super kind of lo-fi, but the songs were good. And I was pretty excited about it. So I gave it to him. And that's kind of what started the friendship. Like he's to this day, a huge just music guy, right? And he really cares about performing well, and it really shows. So I think we bonded first over just music. And then I did the ballad version of Pour Some Sugar On Me, which I sent to him just not long after that. Fast forward 20 years, you'd recorded it, but then you get the call that it's your version they want to include on the Drastic Symphonies album, which on top of that, Joe describes as the most important track on the album. That's an actual quote from the press release, I think. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) I keep saying that it feels like I won like a contest, you know, like, oh, have your song recorded by Def Leppard, right? You know, it's not my song, but I think the fact that they love doing it is such a, it blows my mind because it is obviously a dream come true for me. Especially so long after, what is it like 23, 24 years later down the line? You never know what's going to be around the corner. You never know. And the crazy thing is it is a well-loved cover at my shows. Like I think I play it at almost every one of my shows. So when I got the chance to play with the guys, I was the most rehearsed. Having played it for 20 years. What was the recording process for the actual album version? I'm guessing you recorded your parts 
in Canada. What did you have to work with? Was you the initial starting point for everything that followed or was this some kind of scratch track that the producer had put down? How did it work? It was incredible. The only decision I had to make was to use my original version or re-record. Right. So, I mean, I know my voice has gotten a lot stronger over the last 20 years. So I was wanting to re-record it, but it was ultimately their decision. So they chose from both versions. Yeah, I believe they built the whole track around my recording because, you know, I didn't record to a click or anything like that. So the orchestra would have had to play to my version and then Joe sang on that. Insane. Yeah, (laughs) totally insane. (laughs) And things go from 10 to, in Spinal Tap words, to 11. You're invited to come and perform with the band in the UK, not just with the band, but with the BBC Orchestra as well. What was going through your head with that? Here's the band I was listening to at 12, 13 years old, and now they want me to perform with them. Yeah, I mean, you kind of feel like you can quit. (laughs) (laughs) Big tick. Yeah, exactly. You know, someone asked me what my 12-year-old self would have thought of it, and I would just probably be going like, what is she doing to make them play it that way? Like, (laughs) what kind of spell are they under? You know, you asked me if I'd seen them live, and because I have come to their shows so many times and we've developed friendships over the years, it was so comfortable. It just felt like playing with friends. And I think that's something I'm really grateful for is, you know, you can be a kid listening to your favorite band in the middle of nowhere, and then you might end up somewhere else that you just would never expect. And that's so cool to me. That's great what you said about what would your younger self say. I think that's always a good barometer of perhaps making decisions and things like that with music and stuff that a lot of financial things come in or have I done enough in this industry? Am I as successful as I want to be? But if you always revert back to that, what would your younger self have said if you'd have told them this opportunity comes up? Yeah, I think the ability to stay childlike about things, it gets harder as you get older because you learn so much, right? And I think if anything, if you kind of check in with your younger self, it just gives you gratitude that you might not have, you know, naturally, especially in the music industry, you just get jaded because you care so much about your music and so many people end up ruining what you're doing. (laughs) And also, I think it's just about like enjoying what you're doing, right? So if you're enjoying doing something, I do believe it pays off in the end. You got to do um version of Pour Some Sugar on Me. I think you did Hysteria, I believe. And again, another intertwined moment, Life on Mars by David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Yes. How was it performing with the orchestra? Have you done anything like that before? Not like that. I mean, one of my albums, I was really lucky to have Paul Buckmaster score strings for a quartet. So, you know, he did all the Rolling Stones stuff, a lot of David Bowie stuff. So to have him do that was cool. But that was in studio, right? So you're not really playing with them. So this was incredible. And I think Eric Gorfain, who did the arrangements for the record, I got to like tip my hat to him because so many people do orchestrations that aren't musical and he's so musical about it and obviously a Def Leppard fan so he's gonna really honor the project. Now was the talk of an album with you and Joe together some time ago something of like a Robert (laughs) Plant Alison Krauss style collaboration or is that just one of these projects which you do and we'll finish it one day but it just never gets the chance to come together. Yeah we are writing together he's a great pianist you know I play piano I've played since I was five but in a lot of the stuff we've written together he's the piano player and chooses these crazy chords that I would never come up with. It's really glammy, kind of 
we just are so busy and I don't know when we've written about six songs they're good but like now's their time like now's their time to be touring the world and there's no time limit on stuff like that these days really yeah there's no time limit on magic (laughs) (laughs) how was it for getting the chance to open for the band with Trapper which you say also features your brother Frank but our mutual friend Sean Kelly that must have been a thrill but I want to know how you found time to do that project because everyone's so busy yeah I mean, Trapper, again, just following the joy. Yeah. Like Sean Kelly is the nicest, most talented guitar player in Canada. (laughs) And we just kind of get each other sort of like brother and sister. So I wanted to do something musical with him. And honestly... Trapper really wasn't doing anything until we got those Def Leppard shows. And then suddenly we were like, "Uh uh-oh, we got to go play in arenas. We don't have, we haven't practiced ever. (laughs) So that's what led us to really become a band. I'm envisioning you two as kind of kindred spirits who never actually met for all these years. Then I think you came together over like Twitter or something like that. Yeah, when Twitter was a little more calm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we found each other there and he was playing with Helix and with Nelly Furtado and I just thought, well, the guy's playing with those polar opposites. He has to become my best friend. So those are the times I think social media, you know, is great. Just when you can make those bonds and you find friends, true friends. You must have had a million things to talk about when you finally hooked up. Yeah. And weirdly, we talk a lot about parenting. But yeah, I think... We just also laugh a lot about music, you know, like the other day he just out of the blue texted, you know, dude, I love bad English, you know, just just a random one. <laughs> and I just text back, I say, dude, you know, it's just like those little things just kind of light up my day. Was the Trapper sound quite the departure for your fan base who are perhaps more familiar with the piano led singer songwriter material? That's a, another good question. My fan base is very forgiving. <laughs> Like I will go off and do an Irish covers album. I'll go do like an ambient album. Oh, there's the jazz record. So I feel like they're okay with all the twists and turns. I actually think a lot of people quite liked Trapper. You know, it's not that it's over. It's just we've become so busy and maybe we'll, if someone else invites us to play in their arena, we might get back together. (laughs) But so like having a forgiving fan base it's like david bowie as an artist you can constantly reinvent yourselves that's something he was legendarily known for we choose to move in a different direction your new album business and pleasure you describe as yacht rock but you recorded that in nashville yes do you guys have that term over there yacht rock or not really i've heard of it and i can familiarize myself with it (laughs) yeah so i don't know about labels i sometimes use that just as a way to easily explain the sound to people but it's you know it draws from that west coast sound of 70s 80s also some Motown soul but you know mostly just kind of like the smooth rock vibe you know and I think it's different because it's the first time I've worked with a lyricist my partner Michael and so that gave it this whole other flavor the songwriting process was just so fun because we were writing in the pandemic not really planning for all the things that did eventually happen So, yeah, it was, again, that childlike kind of approach to things. And how was the Nashville experience? Is that somewhere you're familiar with? You've been there a lot many times, or was there a reason you recorded down there? Well, I always found Nashville a bit, like, triggering for me because everyone said it was so great, but I'd never been there. 
right? When people go on and on about how great it is and then you never go, you're just like, well, how great is it really? (laughs) Did you go in with your guard up a little bit like, impress me, Nashville? (laughs) Well, my producer, Fred, he's based there and he kind of made this case for like, you know, come on down. These are my people. I'll put together the team. It'll be great. And when you're a woman in the industry, you have to kind of ask a lot of questions and feel like your intuition is telling you the right things. So I kind of raked them over the coals and <laughs> I said, you know, like, I just don't want it to be like another day's work for everyone. I want them to enjoy it. You know, I want the musicians to really enjoy it. And then when we got down there, first of all, it was the first time I left my kids in a long time. And Omicron was still kind of happening. So there's a lot to be nervous about. I was pretty anxious going down. But the first day in the studio, it was just like, wow, people were so super nice and genuinely nice, like not kind of putting it on. And then the level of musicianship was like nothing I'd ever seen before. That's what they say. It's just yeah. like... So it was all Nashville guys who play on the album, is it? Yeah. yeah. So Shannon Forrest played with Toto on the road. Pat Coyle has played with Michael McDonald. And then another guitar player, Pat Buchanan, had played with like Cameo. So it was honestly the best crew. And for someone who's multi-tracked a lot of her records, it was just like the best experience. How was the recording process? Was everybody doing stuff around a similar time? Or was it people coming in over different days? Or was there a chance to kind of perform together? Or how was that whole process? Yeah, so the band played the songs together right live off the floor. I sang in a booth. I ended up redoing my vocals, but we are doing it all at the same time, which was really incredible. A lot of the guys had played together with each other before so I think that helped how does that help with like separation and stuff like that yeah I mean they know what they're doing we had an amazing engineer so drums would be isolated I would be isolated but everyone else would be on the floor and actually Fred Mullen the producer this is the first time I've seen someone do this like he got out on the floor with the band and was almost like conducting because I'm just so used to producers being in the control room kind of separate just like hey do a take and then I'll tell you what I think on the talk back right So I think that made it really live and really collaborative. Um, So that was two days of doing that. And then we did overdubs of horns. That's the only thing we really overdubbed. I'm going to have to dive back in and listen to it in that headspace now, knowing that it's all done together, because you don't hear of that. Well, I I don't hear of that that often these days. I always consider that being put on for the promo video. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, everyone. One, two, three, play. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a UK album release party on June the 8th in London. You're coming back over on your birthday as well. Yes, I'm very excited. So yeah, June 8th at Pizza Express, The Pheasantry, and playing with some really great new musicians, a drummer named James Sedge and a guitar player named Andy Vickery. And I'd never played with them before. And again, like it blows my mind how musicians just can elevate an experience. But have you had much chance to perform over here doing your solo material in the past? I've tried, Rob. Back in the day, I sort of had some stabs at doing some solo shows, but it was always kind of just coordinated by myself. And that would have been like maybe 20 years ago that I played. So this time, you know, it's great to have a little team. My label, Highwire Records, are helping a lot. And yeah, just super excited. Excellent stuff. And the video for the single Jack is great with that old school Radio Shack backdrop or Radio Jack as it is in the video. And your brother Frank, again, involved with you on this. You guys have had kind of like, almost like, would you like the Billie Eilish and her brother back in the day? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we always work together and he's a great source of feedback whether he's been mixing my records or helping with videos 
Yeah. I think the one time I just loved having him on stage with me when we did Trapper because he had not played in a long time. So yeah, hopefully we'll continue to collaborate. And with like such a varied career, we spoke about your work with Bowie, your rock roots and now the new album. Someone new listening to this show wanting to dive in with an introduction to your career. Where would a good place to start? Can you recommend a good introduction album or is it just literally go on Spotify and work your way through? Well, I think you might be confused if you do that. You could start with the new album because I think that's a sound that I'm going to stay with for a little while. So the album is called Business and Pleasure. And then if you feel like going back in time to like kind of singer songwriter world, then you can rewind and do that. Um, I'll let you go because I know you're super busy, but I've loved chatting with you. Love talking about some hard rock and I love how it's all intertwined in your journey. All right. Thanks, Rob. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much to M. Griner for chatting with me on today's Straight to Video podcast. So, so great to hear how someone who is such a fan and lover of music and the things they grew up on got the chance to meet, become friends and eventually perform with one of their favourite bands. M's new album Business and Pleasure is out now and she'll be in London on June the 8th performing live so if you can make it head along and wish her a happy birthday if not check out all the cool stuff on her website mgriner.com and hopefully she can do more dates in the UK in the future I want to continue to say thanks to everyone who listens and supports this show whether it's on our Patreon page or just on social media making comments and sharing posts it's a lot of work but so much fun to do so I really appreciate it when you say you've enjoyed an episode I'll be back with a brand new show next Friday So until then, thanks for listening. And remember to always be kind. Please rewind and unwind. And I'll speak to you all real soon.